0: And we are gonna continue, actually finish our series in who do you say that I am? That great question that Jesus posed to his disciples. And we've been answering that question uh, through Jesus's own words in the Gospel of John exploring the I am statements. Uh, And today we wrap up with Jesus's great proclamation, I am the true vine. Now I wanna basically begin with this question. Uh, today and that is what is the goal of the Christian life? How do you in your mind define what it means to be a follower of Jesus? What do you think is the goal of your life as a follower of Jesus? Or maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus and that even trying to figure out what is it that Christians think that they're supposed to be about. And I think that the Westminster Catechism has a great starting point for us and that is that the chief end of man of humanity is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think that there is a lot of beauty and a lot of truth in that, Uh, but we have to even then ask the question, well then how is God glorified and how is he actually enjoyed? And so what is it that Jesus is inviting us into as we've considered this series as we've meditated upon these great statements what we've seen again and again in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is inviting us to place our faith in him but what does that mean and what does it accomplish I love Karl Barth's definition of faith is that faith is allowing Christ to be in me and through me and for me what I cannot be for myself It's a very beautiful depiction of faith, as I like to define it, that faith is an attitude toward Christ that allows Christ to be Christ in and through us. And as we'll see through the illustration of the vine is that he is the true vine and that we are the branches, and he makes this unbelievable proclamation and the key to true spiritual power, and that is without me, you can do nothing. Now, the question that we have to ask today is when Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, abiding in him, making our home in him, and he then goes on to say, whoever makes his home with me, he or she will, I will be in them and they will be in me and they will produce much fruit. And so also the question comes down to what then is the fruit that he speaks of? And I think that it's a temptation for us as followers of Jesus in this current climate in which we live uh, to turn the fruitfulness into something internal, Uh, that it's purely the fruit of the spirit being manifested in our lives that allows us to enter into deeper communion with God. And on one level that's true, but it's a false premise if we don't recognize that the fruit of the spirit is always considered and can only be understood in connection to relationship not only with God but to neighbor as well. And therefore, what it means or the goal of the Christian life is both participation in Christ's nature, that's our regeneration, our salvation, but it's also participation in his mission. And I would argue that it is participation in his mission that is being conduits, witnesses to the ends of the world proclaiming Jesus to a lost and broken and suffering world that we actually find our sanctification and we find our intimacy with him. It's not an internal journey upward toward enlightenment. It's an outward, downward journey, a humble descent into the brokenness of Jesus's world to the foot of the cross where we taste the good death again and again and again that we might live by the power of his resurrection life. This is what we're going to focus in on uh, today. We're going to consider three things uh, in this particular passage in John 15. And what we're going to look at is these three concepts of suffering. We have to take into consideration the reality of suffering. To be a follower of Jesus is not to rid your life of suffering. In fact, suffering uh, is an essential aspect of human existence this side of eternity we are broken people in a broken world in a broken cosmos we experience the impact of that brokenness day in and day out both from within and from without and it is a reality that we have to reckon with we do not have to understand it and i think that many theologians throughout church's history has gone to great pains to try to explain suffering which is called the theology, theology of Suffering, which is called theodicy. I, I, I actually believe that there is no adequate theodicy. It is a mystery. It's a mystery that when we accept the mystery, it allows us to enter into the suffering of others. If we spin our wheels trying to figure out why suffering exists, it can actually cause us to begin to be isolated and be unwilling to, uh, unwilling to enter into the world and unwilling to accept that God is good and that he's trustworthy, and that he's merciful, and that he's gracious. Uh, why do we have this deep need to try to explain away every mystery? Mystery allows for romance, the sacredness of romance, and the ability to engage in the world in a meaningful way in spite of the brokenness that's all around us. And the belief that no matter what suffering, how, where it came from, or how, uh, how we get our heads around it, what we do know is that God is able to take broken things Painful things and bring beauty out of it. That's something we can all say because most likely, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already experienced it. So, this is something that we're going to reckon with, but we're also going to reckon with what it means to abide. It's a central word in the Gospel of John. It's an important word that I believe the church should not lose because it's become a bit archaic, but I think it's a beautiful word. And to abide means to remain with or to make our home in Jesus. And this is something he says again and again, that the fruitfulness of the believer's life is dependent upon our proximity to the king, our willingness to make our home in him and and to allow him the right to make his home within us. And then finally, we're going to consider the outcome of making our home in him in a suffering world and even accepting the suffering in our lives that he might bring beauty out of it that he would actually produce in us. a a, a reflection of the gospel of grace that agape love that not self-serving love but that self-sacrificing love which at the very close of this passage he says abide make your home in my love uh, which is such a beautiful picture for truly What the world is panting for every moment, even though it does not understand it, is grace. God's one-way love toward them. The church is meant to be a reflection, a conduit of that love. And so let's begin with this beautiful passage and consider first suffering. In John 15, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says this. He says, I'm the true vine, that is the real vine, the authentic vine. I'm the real one. I am the reality in which all other realities hinge. And he says, and my father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Or another word for that in the context of the metaphor is to cut off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that is, he cuts back. It's also another picture for purification or sanctification that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. And that word actually that he uses for prunes is the same word. So to be pruned is to be cleansed. Uh, and he says, already you have been pruned, cut back, because of the word that I have spoken to you. notice that he does not say because of the great works that you are manifesting or the great faith in which you have exercised. How is... His word spoken to them made them already clean. And I would just simply say that Jesus is the Logos based upon our understanding of John. And that word that's spoken is a living word. And the reason that they are clean is not because of them, but because because they are in the presence of the one whom they are to abide in and he is to abide in them. He's already looking through the cross toward the reality of redemption. He's looking, at, looking through time as we understand it to the, south, to the saving time of Christ that goes back and forward in time. This is the beauty of the cross and its paradox. So here he begins by referring to himself in this beautiful metaphorical language of the vine. And we have to ask the, the question of what is the purpose of this text and we need to take it in its proper context. Now keep in mind that Jesus, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal. He has been speaking to his disciples intimately the most intimate teachings of Jesus captured in the scriptures is found in what is commonly called the upper room discourse and and we often think of the upper room discourse as John chapter 14 through John 17 but what we often miss is that actually at the end of chapter 14 he gives us this incredible statement that gives us the connecting in the in the thrust of what he is getting at in his in John chapter 15 and that's in chapter 14 verse 31 he says but i do as the father has commanded me that is i'm abiding in the father so that the world may know that i love the father so the intimacy and communion that i have with the father is for, is is meant to be reflected to the world that is why i have come i have come to reveal the heart of the father And to to reveal reveal the Father's incredible love for me, which is also a revelation of his love for the world. And so he says, this intimate relationship that I have lived out with the Father has been lived out openly so that the world may know what kind of God God is. Because he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says this, rise, let us go from here. So this teaching in John is actually after they have left the upper room. They have gone out into open, into the open where Jesus is about to be arrested. And what I think we need to get our heads around is that this is the picture of the fruitfulness of the branches that abide in the vine. That our fruitfulness, first and foremost, that the reason that we are kept here in this world is that we might become the very conduits of that love of Jesus toward us and toward others that others would be brought into it for this purpose we have been sent out Jesus says just as the father sent me so I send you you did not choose me I chose you that isn't a statement about who's in and who's out he's saying I chose you to his disciples and he continues to say it to his disciples today which is you and I I chose you that through you I can reach all when he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So the image of the vine serves the mission theme in two important ways. And so it serves it in this way of of helping us understand that at the most basic level, the only purpose of a vine, it's a utilitarian plant, is to produce fruit. I think that's really important. But I think it's also important for us to keep it in its proper context in the entire narrative of scripture. And the vine is actually what Israel itself was called israel was often referred to as the son of god israel was called the vine that was brought out of egypt in fact if you read psalm verse 80 uh, or chapter or psalm 80 verse 80 says you brought a vine out of egypt speaking of israel you drove out the nations and planted it so israel was god's chosen people but why was israel chosen he says i have chosen you From amongst all the nations, not because you were great or because you were mighty or because you were smart. I chose you because you were actually small and insignificant. That I might reveal through your smallness my power, my beauty, my majesty, my character. That you would become literally a nation of priests by which the world would come to know me, the loving, merciful God. But Israel failed in that task. And Israel went into rebellion against God and adopted the gods of the surrounding nations, breaking the Father's heart. And in Psalm 80, when it comes down to verses 14 and 19, it says, Return to us, God Almighty. Here is a rebellious Israel praying for God's mercy. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the son you have raised up for yourself. So interesting that that language that is used. And then what does he go on to say? Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. This is a language that Jesus will actually use uh, in the following verses in John 15. He says, it's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man, you have raised up for yourself. A prophetic, messianic passage looking forward to Jesus. And then I love this. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This psalm is a beautiful picture of, of, of Israel understanding its futility and its attempt to live up to God's holiness, to reach God in its own effort. They see their brokenness. The psalmist sees the brokenness of the people. And he says, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, who is at the right hand of the father, Jesus Christ. And, it, and he says, and the son of man, you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away. It's going to take you entering into this story in order for us to not be the people you don't want us to be. In essence, that is what is happening. And Jesus, in utilizing this metaphor, is speaking to his disciples saying, I am the fulfillment of God's covenant promises with Israel. I am true Israel. I am the one who has come to actually live out the life that no man nor nation could live out before me. And so Jesus comes as the, as the true and final word of the Father. He is the true vine. And he says, and my father is the vine dresser. And so this image of the vine as a fulfillment of Israel's covenantal promises that it had with Yahweh. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of those covenantal promises. God does not turn away from his covenants. He is fulfilling it before your eyes in me. The problem is, is that my people didn't understand my purposes. They thought it was, about, they thought it was just about, uh, about us uh, when I was always about the whole world. And so you have this beautiful proclamation here. Now, here's what Jesus says that I think is important for us to begin to get our heads around when it comes to the idea of suffering. He says, listen, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cuts back. So you think of this this phrase of cut off and cut back. Now, I think that there are many who have had great problems. Many theologians have wrestled with this text, especially for those that hold to eternal security, the idea that once a person is truly saved, they are always saved. That Jesus said, he says, the shepherd knows his sheep. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes on to say even more firmly, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. But here we have this, this picture, and the reason that it's problematic is the language that he uses. He says, every branch in me, speaking of an already connectivity to the vine, that it's speaking of those that are already in Christ. And so how do we address this, this issue? Well, first of all, it's a metaphor. And its purpose, I don't believe, is to necessarily speak to salve, to those who are saved and those who are lost. What I think is speaking to is fruitfulness in the believer's life. I do think that we should take, though, the warning at face value that there will always be amongst God's people those that are not connected to the true vine those that think that they are okay when they are not okay and that is a reality and i think that he even explicit begins to more explicitly spell out as he's even referencing judas who was one amongst them who betrayed jesus and went out from them and so we'll consider that in a minute but i actually think that the way that you can read this on a very practical level is the reality that in us as followers of Jesus we have branches that need to be cut off and we have branches that need to be cut back that's a reality so take into consideration this this Fact. Is there not things in us? I mean, you didn't put your faith in Christ. If you were here today as a believer in Jesus, and you remember like me, the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ into your life, we began with the cross and we began with the simplicity of the gospel. And the gospel is always dependent upon what Christ has done for us, never what we do for Christ. And the power of this statement is that when we come to faith, we experiencing the brokenness, the suffering, the, the futility of our lives, the exhaustion of the ladders that we climb, and we meet the crucified Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and sends his spirit. We come into the shadow of the cross, and we see one who literally took all of our sin into himself and made it his own. That in Jesus there is total and absolute forgiveness. There is absolution. The power of that absolution is that we recognized in our absolute impotence that we could not climb our way to God. It was an impossibility. We needed Jesus to meet us, to save us. And it was actually through the crisis of existence through the despair that we said yes to him now if many of you may have grown up your whole life as followers of Jesus and you don't have that sort of crisis experience I think all of us in our journey of faith as followers of Christ will have moments of crisis that come because the fact is is that yes there is a point where one is dead and then they come alive in Jesus but it doesn't mean that every aspect of life the things that kill us every day are just knocked out and you're just sin free the moment you accept jesus in fact i would argue that in a world a cosmos that is itself broken and it says the the universe is groaning for its redemption that we live in broken bodies broken mind broken universe the limitations of of our reality, the fundamental brokenness that is all around us, the suffering that we see, we, we can't deny it and we still taste it all the time. The question for the believer is not give your life to Jesus and get rid of your suffering. The question for the believer is, do we have a foundation that allows us to enter into that suffering with a strong belief that this is not all that there is? That God can actually weave the dissonant notes of our pain into his beautiful song that he is writing over creation and it will end with him putting right all that is wrong. We live in an age of grace and the reason he has kept us here is that we might be conduits of that gospel of grace to call out to a world that is struggling and suffering under the pressures of massive anxiety and brokenness and to say, As Jesus said as we become the mouth of the of the king we say come to Jesus all you who are weary and he will give you rest stop climbing ladders surrender recognize your inability to save yourself but the fact is is that we don't always recognize in ourselves the things that still continue to kill us and those are things that Jesus needs to cut off from our lives because what he wants to do is continue to make us into his image and what that requires is a continual examination. That's why I say that the Christian life is a daily death. It is actually, it's, it's a thousand deaths. It's dying again and again to the lie of who we were never intended to be and coming alive in his resurrection life. He cuts off things that don't bear fruit in our lives and if you're like me, you can still find numerous things that just simply don't bear fruit. Yeah, what did, I, I love uh, what George McDonald once wrote, he says, a person is in bondage to whatever he or she cannot part with that is less than themselves." I'm like, dang it, there's a... <laughs> all right, Lord, start cutting. This is the reality. So if we think of it in terms of what he cuts off or what he cuts back, just notice here that, that both requires cutting And neither is that fun. And the suffering that people are experiencing all around us, uh, we have to understand that. We have to be able to enter into real suffering to understand how to minister to people who are in suffering. Jesus was baptized into a baptism of repentance. He identified with human brokenness. He came to not only conquer sin, but he also came to conquer death. He entered into every arena of physical limitation. And that is why he is our sympathetic high priest. He understands our pain. When Christians begin to protect themselves from the suffering of the world, to cloister themselves from the brokenness or the blatant sinfulness that is all around us. I was just actually, I flew out on Wednesday to Florida um, to speak for this big conference um, that's Brevard County's getting ready for a Louis Palau um, festival and they did this thing called Renew, where it's 150 churches in Brevard County gathered together. Uh, I spoke to about 250 pastors and then spoke again that night to all these churches represented. I think there was like close to 4,000 people there. And there was such a desire to see God move. It's, it's a county that has one of the highest uh, drug addiction problems in the entire nation. It is the highest-level county in Florida, and the amount of poverty, it's a, such Florida is such a weird place where it is just that cross-section of just unbelievable wealth and unbelievable poverty, uh, and in a, in a brokenness uh, that, that reminded me, actually, of, of the kind of area and the experience that my dad is, lives in. Uh, and, and it was just so powerful to be able to communicate to this community The beauty of God's graciousness and his desire not to deliver us of our suffering and difficulty, but to invite us into life with himself. And so it is that we must understand, as Isaiah 45, 3 says, I will give you treasures of darkness that is what I call the mystery of suffering and its ability to actually bring beauty out of our lives. For even when he has to cut off those dead branches in our lives that are, that are marked by sin, think of the freedom that comes. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Whoever, is, whoever the son of man sets free shall be free indeed. But we have to continually be set free from the things that we tend to go back to. And not only that, when we have things in our lives that are fruitful, the Father will often come into our lives and the, Jesus himself said, you can't take a stand for me, you can't enter into my gospel, you can't be ones who proclaim my goodness and not begin to experience suffering for my name's sake. But this is the thing, we're not sadistic. The goal is not to do what uh, some people misinterpret uh, in Acts when Peter and John, or or excuse me, yeah, it's Peter and John are beaten for proclaiming the gospel. And it says, and they left and they began to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's namesake. Let me just clarify really, really clearly. They were not rejoicing while they were being beaten, okay? It hurt. It was real physical suffering. What they were able to rejoice in is that they were suffering for the right things because we can't escape suffering, but we can choose the kind of suffering in some cases. Some suffering is such a mystery, we just, we don't know. We're like Job. We, we don't have the answers. But there's a lot of things where we can, we suffer when we choose to hide our faith to not abide in Christ. We suffer when we choose to maintain a level of independence and the right to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. That creates a suffering that does not need to be there as followers of Jesus. There's enough mysterious suffering. Why do we want to add to it when we have been given the Holy Spirit who is, who has come to bring us into real freedom And this is why Paul says when you're set free, you run the risk of misusing that freedom uh, because the more freedom we have, the more responsibility we have for that freedom. It takes a conscious uh, discernment empowered by the Holy Spirit to daily die. I always say that the one thing we have the ability to do is to submit. Why does God allow suffering into the believer's life and what's the purpose of it? I think that it's important to remember that Hebrews says that God chastises his children whom he loves well, we live in a culture where it, the idea of chastisement of children is even that language seems archaic and so outside of of uh, you know modern sensibilities. But we'll see where the sensibilities go in another 30 years. I think that the question is is that we recognize that that discipline is not an ugly word; it's a beautiful word by which God actually is refining us into His character. The bravest, most terrifying. Prayer you can pray, as God do whatever it takes to make me a man, a woman, after your own heart. Let me just say this: The reason we suffer sometimes, it's preventative. Remember what Paul said when he said, "Listen, lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, as one who God revealed himself in unbelievable fashion, he says that he was left with a thorn in his flesh. He says, I would have become an egomaniac had I not had had this suffering as a means of keeping me dependent upon Jesus. And he says, I prayed three times that Jesus would remove this thorn from the flesh. And we don't know what it is. He says, all he says is that God's answer to his thorn in the flesh is my grace is sufficient for you. A dependence upon him was the purpose of it. Sometimes it's that corrective component as well, like when Simon Peter, we're told that Jesus said to him, he says, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you in Luke chapter 22 that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Notice, Satan has to ask God permission to sift his children. Oh good, he has limitations. But the terrifying mystery of suffering is that sometimes God says, yes, you may. Once again, as a means of, why, why does Jesus say, but I said no, he says, I prayed that your faith would be strengthened. That you might become, once again, the man that you are meant to be as a conduit of my gospel. And then I think of the, the, this productive reality of suffering. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so we have to ask the question, how should we respond to God either cutting off or cutting back in our lives? Because I see people respond to it in very different ways and how we respond to it will define it, it our ability uh, to, to ex- grow in the wisdom, or, or we can grow in a bitterness over it. So I see people that are terrified by it as if God's hand is not in it. This, I mean, or that, his, that it's out of his control, that he's unaware of it, that he's incapable of changing it. And I see that, that fear come in. I mean, especially when people experience real physical sickness like cancer, which we've had in our congregation multiple times. We have, we have two families right now that I know of that are, that are dealing with that within our community. That's a terrifying thing. And it, it, and it would be easy to begin to doubt God's goodness in the midst of that. This is why we need one another. It's why Jesus said they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. But I think that there, there is a, a thing when we lose jobs or our marriage falls apart or our kids become rebellious, it's, it, it, you can become afraid. And Jesus said perfect love casts out fear. But sometimes it's hard to see that love when you enter into the dark night of the soul. I experience the terror of of suffering when in year two, I entered into eight months of crippling anxiety that was so severe that I was breaking down, crying every hour and I thought I was going crazy. And one of the things that God u- utilized that was to A, show me, he was humbling me and reminding me, cause I, I was like, this church is dependent upon me. And he's like, I'm gonna make you insane. So that, and grow the church during that time To show you that you literally have nothing to do with any of this. And believe me, I believe that now. I have, Lord, I have learned the lesson. I am grateful for the lesson. I don't ever want to go through that again. I'm not some sort of sadistic, like, please, Lord, let me be anxious again. I'm not praying for that. I am grateful that it taught me how to be empath, how to grow. My wife would maybe argue that I'm not as empathetic as I ought to be. So, I pray that that doesn't require another season of insanity. But I I think that, I I mean, I really lost my mind for a long, it was terrifying. I mean, it it required a doctor, it required a psychologist, it required prayer, it required a a community around me. Uh, And in spite of that, God was growing his church, but he was utilizing it to teach me that I I had lost, I didn't have the, the, I hadn't tasted that kind of death And so I wasn't able to enter into that kind of death with others. And we need to be able to enter in to the things that are killing us. Uh, We need to be able to enter into it without being destroyed by it. But at the same time, we can't avoid it. We need to be able to give ourselves gently to it. I understand being terrified and not feeling like God was in it. Or faint under it in unbelief and doubt. I think, I think people can be exercised by it, recognizing in due time it will produce fruit. And that's easy to say when you come out the other side. It's not so easy to say when you're in the midst of it, which is why we need one another so desperately. All I know is that God is able to take every broken strand within our existence and we know the end of the story, guys, that he will make all things new in fact we're actually told that if anyone be in christ all things are new now and that's where we need to remind ourselves of this identity of who we are in jesus in the midst of our suffering and i don't know where you're at i don't know if you're experiencing physical suffering emotional suffering suffering that you're bringing upon yourself through patterns of sin that you can't seem to break free from or maybe you're experiencing the suffering of someone sinning against you all i know is that god says to you through Jesus, his own words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. And he is not surprised or turned off or turning his back on you if you are a person that's trapped in patterns that, that, need, to, that need to die because they're killing you. He wants you to know that if you're a sinner, he's the, you're the, exactly the kind of person he came for. You're his cup of tea. But he doesn't want to leave you in your sin because you can't come into contact with the gospel and not experience also its its holiness, its beauty. When we move toward this beautiful picture of abiding, we need to understand this. He says, abide, make your home in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Notice this. You're You're not helping Jesus produce fruit. You're abiding in Christ so that through you, your faith in him, he can produce fruit through you. He says, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, which means everything that we do apart from him is what? Nothing. Good answer. Good job. <laughs> if, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away, put outside. Like a branch... And withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned now this is a powerful picture of of home abide make your home in me notice what he's saying don't just trust that i died for you but trust in me daily trust in yes trust in my death for your forgiveness of sins. Trust in my in my death and resurrection for the regeneration of your life. But that trust is a daily trust because Jesus says, pick up your cross now and follow me. It's that we come alive, we experience the new birth, but the new birth now calls us into action. The Christian life is not static. He is moving us outward, not inward. He is moving us out into the world, but that moving into the world is actually how we find our place in him as our home. And when I think about this illustration of the home, it really helps me understand the power of Jesus' words here about what it means to be a disciple. Abide, make your home in me. I think of these words, I've been reading this author kind of obsessively, I just, I'm almost done with this fourth book by her, um, her name is Rachel Cusk, she's this English author, and she just wrote, a, wrote a, a book of essays, and one of the essays is called Making Home, and it's her meditations and reflections on what it is that we're trying to reflect in our homes. She says this, like the body itself, a home is something both looked at and lived in, a duality that in neither case I have managed to reconcile. I retain the belief that other people's homes are real, where mine is a fabrication, just as I imagine others to live inner lives less flawed than my own. And I think this is a really powerful picture. She's not a believer from anything I've been able to read. But what she does notice is that the home becomes a reflection. When we get a home and we remodel it, and and we gut it. And Dars and I have done this a couple times with homes. We've had the the privilege of of designing and, and bringing a, a churches back to life as well. Is that what are we doing? We're 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 trying to create a reflection of that of those values that we care about, the things that we think are beautiful. But often our presentation, if we're going to be really honest about it, the presentation of our home is often putting forth a front. I mean, think about the way that Instagram is used to nobody. Is using Instagram to show the toilet lid up or the sink full of dishes, like, look at my beautiful kitchen after my children and all their friends ate here today. You know, I actually, I actually was thinking about this uh, because I love beautiful spaces, and and I I think that our our spaces should reflect the gospel on on some level, like our lives do, and the gospel I, it should reflect this this. this this invitation that Jesus that Jesus says come to me with your chaos with your mess that i love you come in and and be with me and 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 i think of the i think of the places where i've been in the world where where, there's, where poverty is so deep that people are worshiping in a church that has a dirt floor or gone into a home where just, there isn't even the idea of, should I get my couch from Ikea or West Elm or, or more expensive than that? Should I? There's no thoughts around that. It's just there's a, there's a simplicity, but there's still this unbelievable beauty and, and, and gentleness and sweetness that has to do with the reflection of the heart of Christ in the center of that home. I think what Cus captures really perfectly is the insecurities and the desires to actually manifest some sort of false control in how we make our environments. When what Jesus, it's a perfect illustration of what the gospel is asking. What Jesus is saying essentially when he says, I want you to make your home in me and so that I can make my home in you. Without me, you can do nothing. This is the essence of the gospel. Whoever proclaims with their lips that Jesus is Lord, that means He is the one who gets to make the decisions, not you. That's the essence of the gospel. So, yes, is the gospel just simply saying yes to Jesus? It is. But it's like saying yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you can have my house. And he's like, great. I hate that couch. I don't like that comforter. I don't like, you know what? I hate mid-century architecture. All that must go. I prefer Victorian, fluffy, and floral. I I don't think Jesus has a preference, but my point is is that he has the right to define his terms in our lives. And we don't like that. And this is why it's, not, it's very difficult for the non-believer to say yes to Jesus. And honestly, it's the reason it's hard for the believer to say yes to Jesus every day as well, because you are giving up control of your life. I think if we actually allowed the, the beauty of real life the honesty of our lives, to be the thing that's presented to the world, there would be something quite appealing about that. Maybe if our pictures on Instagram were a little more, more honest about how we actually live, for isn't the home truly the place where we, it's the only place where we are allowed to be anarchist? It's the only place where it's okay to walk around in our underwear? Well, that's a stupid illustration in Portland, but, uh, but in most places in the world, it's the only place. Uh, I think that this is the beauty and what Jesus is saying he's like I want you to make your home with me but I want to make my home in you and that means I want to get rid of the dead stuff and I want to rearrange things and I want control but it's not until we give him control that we do that we begin to find the freedom and the thing is is that the enemy in the world tells us do not give up control because control is the only thing you have I'll just share with you this story before moving forward my dad um, as I've shared with you guys over the years, I've been trying to share the gospel with him again and again. I, I went up and spent time with him in January. He's a lifelong alcoholic, uh, probably, I mean, my whole life long. He's been drinking heavily since high school, hard drug user, and now he's at the end of his life. He lives alone in Alaska in a dirty run-down home. He's on an oxygen machine. He People are taking advantage of him and staying in his house so they can use his money and drink his booze. And he's willing to let them do that because he'd rather have them in his home than be alone. And he's been in the ICU over six times, probably a dozen times since I was there in January. And I was beginning to lose hope and he's even been avoiding my call lately now that he has company because he knows that I don't like that he's letting this, this these people stay at his house. Uh, and And he he was back in the hospital and I get this, this text message from this man who's a pastor, he's a chaplain. And he tells me that, um, he he asked, he can call. So he calls me and he tells me this whole story about how he's been sharing the gospel with my dad for the last three years. Now, this is the crazy thing is I, when I was there in January, my dad was able to actually Articulate, like he understood the gospel more fundamentally than he should have because he never grew up in church. And I thought it was like just the Holy Spirit, like, or maybe I thought I was just a super clear communicator. <laughs> but then I realized I actually never even had been able to get to the full gospel because my dad would shut me down almost immediately. But I said, I asked him what he believes. He goes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. I believe he died for my sins, blah, blah. blah. He was able to articulate all these things. And I remember the day I left, I said, Dad, why? won't you just give your life to him? And he said, he goes, I'm not ready to surrender. And I'm like, at least my dad's being honest about why. He knows it's the truth, but he's not able to, for some reason he thinks he's got something to hold on to. And he'd rather hold on to the death of the life that he's living than experience the life of Jesus. Well, here's the other thing. So this man, Frank, calls me and we talk for a half an hour and he's like, I've been sharing the gospel with your dad and he's told me that he asked Jesus into his heart. I go, are you serious? And he goes, "He goes, yeah, he goes, he looked at me and said, I asked Jesus into my heart. I don't think it's stuck. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so my dad that he would say that. But I think my dad actually gets what Jesus is calling The problem is, is that my dad still fundamentally believes what some of you believe. And that as Jesus isn't going to come in and make his home in my life until I clean the house up. He doesn't want you to clean up your house first. He wants to just come into your house. And then, then he's going to make him. He's going to, it's going to be crazy. He's going to turn your life upside down. But don't think that you have the ability to clean up his house before he comes in. Because you don't even know what he likes. I'm, we're still figuring that out, Right. What he says is, trust me, I love you. I actually do know what's best from you. I created you for myself. Let me come in and make a home for myself. But you got to say yes. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in to, to her, him or her, and I will make my home with them. And Jesus isn't going to force himself in. If the door stays locked, we find ourselves in this place that, that here, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, anyone doesn't let me make their my home in them, or they don't make their home in me, they will be thrown away, that is put outside, and that seems like a harsh language, but he's keeping true to the metaphor, but it's, it's very true to the, to, the, to the power of the gospel and that we are dealing with eternal realities and consequences, that what we do today matters in eternity, and it's not... I can earn my way to Jesus. I can clean my house up and then he'll come in and have have a comfortable place to stay. No, he says, I'm not interested. He's not asking. I told my dad that he's not. I'm like, dad, he's not saying stop drinking and then come to me. In fact, if you stop drinking, I'm positive, it would actually kill you. He's not saying stop smoking and then you can come to me. He says, Al, I don't want your cigarettes. I don't want your alcohol. I just want you. We'll worry about that later. Just come to me. Say yes to me. Let me in. That's the invitation. And the power of this passage here is that, is that we have before us, the reality is that we will either invite him in or, or we will keep the door closed. And it says the one who keeps the door closed is the one that actually ultimately will find themselves on the outside. And I think that the terrifying thing of this passage is we see it actually in, in John uh, thirteen thirty when Judas, he says, one of you amongst, amongst us is a devil. And all the disciples, what's so fascinating is none of them had any idea who it was. And Judas, they're all wondering if it was them because they all knew that they were complete failures. But Jesus says, You're clean because my word is with you. You've stayed with me. That's what makes you clean, not what you did. But Judas didn't stay with them. And Judas says, Is it me, Lord? And Jesus said, yes. And it says, and Satan entered into him. And after he had eaten the bread, this is the most terrifying passage, I think, he immediately went out outside and it was night. And I think that there is a heaviness to that. But what I would encourage you is that as long as there is breath in your lungs, he is pursuing Al White to the grave. And I believe my dad, I'm like, I don't know if it's stuck or not. And I'm not sure that my dad would be able to tell at this point either. There is this implicit, beautiful trust. He's a little bit like the thief on the cross. All the thief on the cross could say is, Lord, remember me in paradise. And that's the only work he did was say yes to Jesus's death in that moment. And so I have to believe that even those that are thrown out, that that are outside of that kingdom, what's the purpose of the church is that we're to go out to those on the outside and invite them in because they are, we know that the world is creating hell for itself because we're aware of how easily it is for us to still create hell for ourselves and this is why we must also understand that God is a consuming fire and that his love is a consuming fire and that his wrath is nothing more than his love violated he hates sin because it robs him of what he loves which is you and so he says let me come in let me put out everything that needs to be burned up let me rearrange and cut back what is fruitful so that you're more fruitful so that we can become the loving people which is where he ends if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me so have i loved you abide in my love Jesus closes this powerful statement. He says, listen, when you make your home in me and I make my home in you, you will begin to produce fruit. And this is what how the father is glorified. And what is that fruit? Well, the fruit of the spirit is exactly that. It's the spirit's fruit to produce in us. But let us keep in mind that that fruit is meant to be manifested to the world. It's all relational fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. It's not so that we can grow into some sort of mystic union with Christ apart from the world. Our mystic union with Jesus is actually quite earthy. It is meant to lead us into the brokenness of the world so that through us, that fruit of the spirit can actually bring about more fruit, that is bring people into the vine that the lost world will meet the risen, resurrected Jesus, that we actually proclaim as witnesses to the King as we abide in him and the power of the Holy Spirit, we tell a dead world to rise up, come alive in Jesus, put your trust in him, open the door to him. He loves you, he alone can remove the anxiety that is destroying you. He alone can actually bring hope and healing in the midst of your suffering. Yes, he. look at us. He doesn't promise to remove suffering. We are people that suffer, but we recognize that we have a hope that goes beyond this moment, beyond this suffering, beyond the impossibility of living because Jesus is that good. And he says, my words, if my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish. Notice that it defines how we ask because if Jesus is the one abiding in us by His spirit and we are yielded to him, we say yes to Jesus every day. We repeat that yes of love and allow him the right to be the king in and through our lives. It is then that we will actually be filled with the spirit who will actually teach us how to pray and what we will pray will be in line with his spirit. We can trust God with our with our needs, with our, with our wants, but it begins to lead our prayer life outside of ourselves and toward the world world what we long for is 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 the reality of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven what we long for is to see the lost saved what we long for is is the heart of God so that we feel what he feels and desire what he desires and when we abide in him that is what happens our interests our passions are transformed and we begin to ask and we receive because we're asking for the right things. God always answers prayer. It's just that often the the answer is no because he's a good parent and he knows that we often do not need what we think we want. If I would have gotten what I wanted when I was in my 20s, I would not have come to faith because all I wanted was fame and it would have killed me and it would have killed my marriage and Henry and Hattie would never have come into existence. God knew what I wanted, I didn't know it. And that's the same with our house, because I don't know if you're like me, even using as an example, the thought of someone else decorating my home actually makes me kind of sick to my stomach. <laughs> In fact, when we did this church, I remember sitting down with the staff and, and, and volunteers and I'm just like, you guys, when it comes to spiritual things, collaboration, when it comes to the aesthetic design of the building I'm a total dictator, no apologies. (laughs) So this is what Jesus wants, total authority, absolute authority. What he wants is you to allow him to be responsible for you, that you might be fruitful by becoming a conduit of his love. And as we enter into his world and invite people in, it is that that brings transformation. It's that that brings the reality of God's graciousness into our lives. We suffer in him and with him. As we rest in him, we are able to overcome. We are overcomers. And it is our ability to, to, to stand fast in our faith in the midst of difficulty that becomes a pillar amongst a world that is looking for answers that actually bring meaning to this crazy place that we live. And so may we be conduits of his grace in everything that we do. Amen. Let's pray.